Hi. Uh, good evening, uh, everybody. Uh, my name is uh, Professor Michael Cox. I'm chair, director of LSE Ideas. Welcome here this evening uh, to this LSE Ideas event. A night of sadness, one level, as we say farewell to a friend, uh, a colleague, uh, and one of the school's superstars. Uh, yet a night of celebration for his contribution to the life of the LSE over the last 17 years. I think no fear of contradiction. I think I can say this on my behalf, but certainly on behalf of the school. Arnie, you're going to be missed. <laughs> Question next is, why are you going? Uh, Arnie, uh, Odani Vestad, that's the last time I'll use my Norwegian accent, uh, was born in 1960 in Alsund in West Norway. Uh, he was educated in the University of Oslo, and then he went to the United States, to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Then, as I, I would put it, he had two jobs, official jobs. Firstly, between 1991 and 1998, he was director of research at the Nobel Institute, in, uh, in Oslo, and then between 1998 and 2015, this year, he came here to the LSE, where he was finally awarded a chair in the International History Department. Those were his two official jobs. His real job, of course, was working with me. Uh, he had, we had two very big jobs together, and, he, and we, I think we played it equally. Uh, firstly, when we set up the Cold War Study Center, I was trying to work out today when we actually start, set it up. No doubt people write histories about this, but the official date is 2004 when we set up the Cold War Study Center over in East Building, which is just about to come down, by the way. So if you want photographs of that room, just for the archives, please go over there and get it. And uh, you'd better do it very quick, by the way, because it'll be down in a few months. And then in 2008, by absolutely no planning by either of us, I think, although the idea did come up in Arnie's back garden in Cambridge, we came up with the idea of LSE Ideas, which we formed in 2008 together. Uh, I can say personally it was great fun to work alongside Arnie. I know that his, all of his students, both here and on the continent and the United States, would say Arnie is a great teacher. Um, and third and finally, of course, and perhaps maybe most important, Arnie has been and will remain and no doubt will become even better, a, a great scholar. Arnie has published many, several books. I think the Global Cold War and the Restless Empire will stand. But his Cambridge Cold War history, I think, will be a major reference book on that for many years to come. Arnie has accumulated distinctions galore over the long and distinguished career he's had here at the school, the Bancroft Prize, the Bernard Schwartz Book Award, and, of course, not many years ago, he was made Fellow of the British Academy. I'm also bound to add another distinction to the list Arnie Westad is a lifelong supporter of the Arsenal Football Club, yeah, yeah, yeah. which of course will always go down in history as his major contribution to world civilization. <laughs> uh, I'm personally delighted, privileged indeed, to welcome my old friend, my old, my old buddy. Uh, dare I say at the LSE, my old comrade, but that's too much laskiest, isn't it really? My old friend Arnie Westad to speak this evening 
at the LSC at the school that he has privileged by his presence on China, the United States, and Asia in the 21st century. Arnie, I hand the floor over to you. Please give him a great welcome. Thank you very much, Mick, for that, that kind and, if I may say so, very Coxian introduction of me. Uh, one of the greatest pleasures that I've had at LSE has been working with Mick. It's um, been a pleasure to vote, and it's never been anything but entertaining, as you may imagine. So today I'm going to talk about China, the United States, and Asia in the 21st century. And this is a topic that's obviously selected because of its importance, but it's also because it forms a nice transition to what I will be teaching uh, at Harvard when I go there in, in the autumn. Um, China's rise in world affairs is, of course, the great story of our times. It is perhaps what attracted me the most, uh, hesitantly, very reluctantly, to leave the LSE, uh, was the ability to teach about these kinds of issues in a broader context, uh, in, in North America. But before I get to that topic, let me pause a little bit. First and foremost, to mention f a few points about my association with the school and to give thanks to some of my friends. I mean, my first thanks, of course, must be to the great institution, uh, the LSE. Um, I have enjoyed my time here tremendously. It's always, to me, going to be the essential part of my education, ongoing education, as it, as it has to be. The school has given me opportunities far beyond what I could expect when I first arrived here. No other top academic institution in the world, at least no one that I know of, would hire a young scholar from abroad with a strange accent and a mm -hmm. funny name and immediately to put him to work on some of the big issues that affect all of us. That's the opportunities that the LSE give you, and it's, a, it's really been a privilege for me to work at. Intellectual breadth and the contention of the LSE has suited me perfectly and allowed me to grow um, both as a scholar, but maybe first and foremost as an individual. Um, it's been a, a wonderful association for me in all possible Right. There will be many occasions for me to say thank you later on to various groups of people, friends, who I've worked with throughout the school, but let me just do a, a few words of thanks now. I want to thank the three directors who i worked closely with since I came to the school, Tony Giddens, Howard Davis, Craig Calhoun, who is here um, tonight. That has certainly been a pleasure for me throughout. I want to thank Mick again. Sedosa um, Rajak, uh, Emilia, who is also here, uh, with whom I built LSE Ideas. And um, we built it, but the people who peopled it, who organized it, who set it up, were the younger people who came into LSE Ideas. LSE Ideas is a collective enterprise. And it's based on, it's built on, it's driven forward by the enthusiasm, very often unremunerated enthusiasms of the younger people who are associated with the center. And I want to give my thanks to, to, to all of them. I want to give thanks to Tiha, 
the center secretary with whom I worked very closely now for, for more than a decade, and of course to my colleagues in the International History Department and around the school. And perhaps most important of all to me, to the students, the LSE has a remarkable group of students, both at the undergraduate and the postgraduate level. And working with them has been the greatest pleasure that I've had um, since I came to, came to the school almost 20 years ago. So the topic tonight is about global change, and it is about what will happen in the relationship between China and the United States, first and foremost within Asia, uh, over the decades to come. This is the historian trying his hand at prediction, but of course always prediction rooted in the past, because it's the past that delivers the resources that we have in order to say anything meaningful about the future. Now, what we say about the future, as historians or whatever your background is, may turn out to be wrong. But it's always useful to be informed by history. It doesn't give you the answers, but it enables you, in some cases at least, to ask some very good questions uh, about what the future, the future might hold. I first came to China in 1979, so more than 35 years ago, as an exchange student. And I must say that to me personally, this has been the greatest adventure that I've ever been part of, to see the, the remarkable transformation that has taken place in China since the late 1970s. And it's very important for me to underline that first and foremost, it's a change for the better. China has become richer, but also freer. And that is part of the great story of our times, that China has now risen in many fold ways, not just in one way. We have a tendency to underline the economic growth more than anything else, and that is important. But it's not just about economic growth. When I first came to China, people were deadly afraid of expressing themselves, of congregating, of meeting with others, of meeting with foreigners. That's no longer true. And that is a breakthrough in terms of China's future and the history of, uh, of the last 25, 30 years that should be celebrated. It's a positive development overall. And it's important to have that as a starting point, I think, for thinking about the kind of stuff we'll be talking about tonight. China has also become richer, obviously, in terms of its economic development overall. It's still not rich like the United States. And some people, when they look at statistics, and even in a great university like the LSE, we can sometimes get statistics terribly, terribly wrong. Um, China becoming a richer country like the United States because it has a bigger GDP, that will very soon be true. But equally true and equally important is that if you compare to the United States, the average Chinese is 10 times poorer than the average American and will remain so for quite some time, in part because of China's big population, but also because income in China tends to be very unequally distributed, which is one of China's biggest problems, I think, in overall terms. One of the big questions that we're going to discuss tonight is whether China's rise will lead to conflict. Will it lead to conflict internationally? Will it lead to conflict in Asia? Will it lead to a confrontation between the United States and China? The situation that some people 
referred to as the Thucydides trap. And this refers to what the great Greek historian Thucydides wrote in his first book of the Peloponnesian Wars, where he said, it was the rise of Athens and the fear that is inspired in Sparta that made war inevitable. That's the Thucydides trap. The sense that when things change, and particularly when they change as dramatically, more about that later, that they have done over the past 25 years or so, then conflict is brewing. A lot of people are thinking about that and writing about that at the moment, and this is one of the discussions that I have been part of here with Mick and with Danny Kwa, who is in the audience, and a lot of other people who have been addressing this. Um, does this mean the, an unavoidable conflict between China and the United States in the longer run? The difference between a status quo power and an aspiring power. Will that necessarily lead to conflict? And I'm going to try to address that question by looking first and foremost at the rivalry between the United States and China in the Asian region. But before we do that, you have to look at the fundamentals, what is happening on a, in a broader global context, because that is what is going to frame all of this. This is not just about China and the United States. And anyone who is claiming that are bound to go badly, badly wrong. This is about global change happening with a speed and with an intensity that we have never seen before. Because of modern communications, because of the modern economy and, and how it works, because of the interaction between societies and not just states, the, the spread of ideas, the spread of, of attitudes and, and concepts on, on a global scale. And of course, this also means that there are other powers rising, not just, uh, not just China. Um, as my friend and colleague Barry Busan, who is also here to, today, is fond of pointing out quite correctly, what is the most likely system that comes out of this in global terms over the next generation or so is a multipolar system. It is a system in which China rises, but where India, Brazil, a number of other leading countries also rise. And that we therefore will have a much more diverse world than the one that most of us have become used to and most of us have, have grown up with. There are also, of course, the domestic factors that one needs to look at in this context in order to frame this relationship. And in domestic terms, and this is to me extremely important, we are of course dealing with two countries in the United States and China which are different, but not all that different. This is not the relationship between the United States or the Soviet Union or Britain and its many challenges in the early part of the 20th century and the latter part of the 19th century. Both the United States and China, although some Chinese leaders deny this, are wedded to market-led economic growth. There is no system in China that in, is in its essence, in its economic essence, different from what you find in the United States or in Europe. It has some Chinese characteristics, to use that term, to it, but it's basically as, if not more market-driven than many full-fledged capitalist economies that you see elsewhere in the world. And then there is also the issue of what will happen in the future in terms of economic development. China currently has the edge 
overall, over the last 25 years, its growth has been spectacular. It has been unique. It's been outstanding. It has not been similar to any economic breakthrough that we have ever seen before in the world. But its growth is slowing. My guess is that this year and over the next decade, it will slow quite sharply. It will probably still grow at a higher rate than the United States. It will also probably grow at a higher rate than most of its other competitors in a global sense. But it would not be the kind of mega growth that we've seen in the past. And that's also an important part to take in. The years of 10% per annum economic growth are gone. And I don't think they will ever come back in China. In part, of course, because its economy has already developed up to a level which would, in, in, in any uh, setting, make that unlikely. Then there are the political systems, if you compare the United States and, and China. Now, anyone who's been reading about the United States of late, or anyone who's been to the United States, will know that the American political system is not doing all that well. Uh, and in particular, the relationship uh, between the executive branch and the legislative branch seem to be developing in a direction that provides not solutions, but political gridlock. That's difficult. That's problematic. And it's going to remain that way, in my view, uh, at least for the next eight years. But still, the American political difficulties pale in comparison with those within China. China has a political system today that, in my view, is not fit for purpose. And it will have to change. Now, how dramatic these changes are going to be, we don't know. And it's hard, it's hard to guess. But at some point, the current one-party dictatorship will have to go and be represented by something that is broader, more inclusive, more pluralistic, but not necessarily democratic in the way that we would recognize it from the standpoint of most of the people who are here tonight. What I'm pretty sure about is that it will not remain the way that it is today. And that's a much bigger transition than any political transition that you can think about on the U.S. side, or indeed on the side of, of most West European um, countries. So I think it's also important to note here, you can predict such changes even while believing um, that it's not given, it's not a necessity, that this would lead to economic collapse in China and to state dissolution of the Soviet kind. I think... This is in part because the economic sector in China is much more autonomous than most people realize. And the different parts of China, including Tibet, Xinjiang, Mongolia, are more tightly connected to the center than most people recognize, uh, in spite of the oppression that the current government meets out to uh, areas uh, at the periphery of China. Now, if we look briefly at the United States in terms of its overall um, policy choices with regard to Asia and with regard to China, I think it's very likely that you will find a harder line towards China in the next presidential administration, um, whether Clinton or Bush or Rubio or whoever uh, gets elected. The main reason for this is that because 
There are a lot of Americans who link their problems to China's rise in various forms. There is the idea that taking a hard position, a tough position against China is something that counts well politically. And I think this is one of the big problems on the U.S. side in terms of the development of, of American uh, China policy. If the U.S. economy turns out to be resurgent, to be more successful than what we have seen in the immediate past, which is entirely possible, I think some of this might go away, but not all of it. There is still this deep perception that America's perceived decline is linked to China's rise. And that goes much beyond the general political sector in the United States and makes rational policymaking, if you can call it that, much more difficult, uh, much, more, much more harder to do. I also think that the next administration will continue what the Obama administration has called its pivot to Asia. It will increase its naval commitment to Eastern Asia in general. It will harden the insistence on freedom of navigation and overflight, including in exclusive economic zones, which of course has a great deal to say about the South China Sea area. And it will do so for military as well as civilian uh, ships and planes. And it will challenge Beijing if those principles are seen as being violated. I also think it's very likely that you will have more emphasis on space and on cyber warfare uh, with regard to confronting China in a broader, in a broader sense. So it, it's likely, it's not certain, but it's very likely that U.S. policy will harden on a number of these issues when the next administration comes in. Now, my main point today in terms of trying to understand this is that over the coming two decades, irrespective of what happens domestically in China and the United States, the key U.S.-Chinese rivalry will be for Eastern Asia. China is not on its way to become a global power in the American sense of the term global power anytime soon. And I think it's a very open question whether it ever will. Not because China has less aspiration than what the United States had, but simply because it's becoming more difficult. I think in many ways uh, it is likely that we will not have a global power like the United States again, at least for a very, very long time. So the question is, how will China behave in its own wider region as it rises? And I think this is where much of the core problem is. That when people from the larger Eastern Asian region look at China, they see two Chinas. They see Deng Xiaoping's China, which set out in the late 1970s to undo a catastrophic Maoist approach to the neighbors, and succeeded magnificently in doing so over a period of about 20 years, with an emphasis on cooperation, with an emphasis on integration, as we saw during the uh, East Asian uh, financial crisis in, in, in 1998, China as a participant. Um, as Bob Solek uh, uh, on the U.S. side put it back then, China as a responsible stakeholder, someone who participated within the system. And then the other China, which is China since 2008, or, or thereabouts, which is an assertive China, 
a China that behaves increasingly as a bully towards its various neighborhoods and is increasingly disliked by many, not all, but many of its neighbors as a result of this. So which China is it, I think, is one of the big questions for the future in terms of the direction that things would be, uh, would be taking. If I were to sum up what we know today, just back from China, uh, beginning of this week, what I believe is the principal policy position of China under Xi Jinping, under the new president and leader of the party, it is a policy that intends to replace the United States deliberately as the primary power in Asia, while avoiding open conflict with the United States. So it's a two-pronged policy. Replace, but avoid conflict, which is, of course, bloody hard to do. And if you challenge someone's interest, usually you get some kind of pushback. And I think this is the dilemma uh, that China will be facing over the next 10 years or so. And as I said, I think these issues will be concentrated on Eastern Asia. And Eastern Asia consists of two very complicated regions, as, as most of you know. Northeast Asia, Northeast Asia, China's relationship with Korea and, and with Japan, um, and Southeast Asia, conflicts that exist uh, in part, mainly perhaps, but not exclusively around rights in the South China Sea. So these are difficult neighborhoods to operate in for anyone who wanted to get into this and, 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 and try to deal with it. Korea is, of course, one of the biggest challenges for China and to some extent also for the United States. But China has the bigger challenge. If you have one ally in the world, which China has at the moment in formal terms, which is, which is North Korea, and that ally does not treat you very well, to put it mildly, you have a problem. You don't have so much of an ally as you have a significant problem. Uh, and the Chinese leadership are, of course, increasingly aware of that. One of the things that struck me when I was in China over the past few weeks is how bad the relationship between Beijing and North Korea has become over the last few months, where there is very, very little trust left, where the Chinese elsewhere within the region are talking a great deal about the threats that are there from, from North Korea, uh, disseminating information on enrichment, on other kinds of nuclear activities, basically to tell others that if something really, really bad happens with the North Korean nukes, it isn't, it isn't our fault. I mean, the Chinese version of wasn't me, mate. Um, and you can see this over and over again now with regard to North Korea. Now, this doesn't make things in terms of the relationships on the Korean Peninsula any simpler. In many ways, it makes them more difficult, more, more problematic. Because if China throws up its hands and says that there's very little influence in North Korea, come what may, of course, we're in more trouble than what we'd been earlier on. Uh, rather, than, rather than less trouble. And then, of course, there is the relationship to Japan, very often presented as being problematic because of historical reasons, right? And, of course, Japan has a terrible history in terms of its attack, attacks on other countries in Eastern Asia, the terrible crimes that they committed in China during the occupation, during, during the Second World War. But in reality... The real difficulties of this relationship now has nothing to do with history, or it only has to do with history in the very broadest sense. 
It is about a competition for primacy within East Asia. It's cultural, if you could say, at least as much as historical, in the sense that it is impossible for the Chinese, and here it goes much beyond the current leadership group that is in power in Beijing, to accept that Japan could have an equal role with China within its region. It's simply not possible. China is the big country, the cultural origin of a common culture for the whole region. right? And what Japan has basically done wrong is not just attacking others and, and doing terrible things, but it is the presumption that is built into all of this that Japan could be China's equal. Now, that's, of course, again, not the best starting point for a cooperative relationship over time, if you think about it. And it's going to be very, very hard to solve as a, as a conflict. Of course, what China has been doing of late by putting pressure on Japan, particularly with regard to the uh, Diaoi Islands, the Senkaku Islands, but also other issues, is to push Japan closer to the United States which is the worst possible solution in, in a longer-term sense from a Chinese perspective. Because as long as the Japanese-US alliance holds, China will never be the primary power within its region. Uh, the United States will, because of the power of that alliance. If you have uh, that in place, things will not develop the way China would like to. So to some extent, you could say China's policies with regard to Japan though you can understand where they come from, are to some extent counterproductive. Now, the same could be said about Southeast Asia. Deng Xiaoping used to say that his greatest achievement was not normalization with the United States. It was not starting to work with Japan, both of which he did and did remarkably successfully. But it was to break two generations of mistrust and lack of cooperation between China and Southeast Asia. It was turning things around entirely from what had been the case before and starting what seemed to be, for quite a long time, a cooperation between the two sides that had benefits for all. Now, within the last few years, most of that is gone, um, particularly over the conflict over access to resources in the South China Sea. There are other difficult issues in the U.S.-Southeast Asian relationship as well, but it's particularly about the South China Sea and about the resources that may or may not be under it and the access to navigation through it. And by pushing its own perspective on this and its own national interest in a narrow sense, very, very strongly, China has put itself in a position where most of the goodwill that had been created since the late 1970s or thereabouts in the relationship between China and Vietnam, between China and, and, and um, the Philippines, China and Indonesia, China and Malaysia, much of that is gone. It's no longer there. And it will take a very, very long time uh, to bring it back in. What is really problematic, of course, from a Chinese perspective, is that the harder China pushes on these kinds of things, the more likely a further U.S. involvement in this region becomes. So again, some of China's policy here seems to me to be rather counterproductive. Now, one of the big questions is what would then be the outcome 
of this kind of policy if it were to be continued. Could this lead to conflict or even war in the region, both Northeast and, and Southeast Asia? Yes, I think that is possible. I think it would be wrong for anyone here in Britain, in Europe, in the United States, and particularly within the region itself, to rule that out. It has more of a potential for different forms of conflict than anywhere else that I know of in the world. And that includes Russia and its relationship with its neighbors of, of large-scale conflict and possibly of large-scale war. Could it lead to a conflict or war between the United States and China? It's unlikely, but it's not impossible. And this is where some of the things that come from the study of history do play a role. Great power wars, in all cases, if you look at them a couple of years before they happen, do look almost impossible. But then they happen anyway. And I do think it is important to take some of the warnings that have come of late, also from inside China itself. I was sitting, Barry and I were sitting with a number of China's top foreign policy experts in the beautiful city of Hangzhou um, a week ago. And all of them were concerned about this. Every single one was concerned about the potential for conflict. One of them was talking you know, about the Trafalgar moment. When would that come with regard to Southeast Asia, with regard to the South China Sea? So ruling this out, I think, would be ridiculous. As ridiculous as believing uh, you know, that this is something that is preordained, something that will have to happen, and happen more or less by, by itself. There's a set of new analyses that I would encourage all of you who have an interest in this to read that try to argue around this. Uh, Kevin Rudd, the former Australian Prime Minister, uh, now at Harvard, has come up with a very interesting broad report um, for the Welfare Center, where he emphasizes the potential for further integration between China and its region, as long as the United States is willing to support it, is willing to push for it, deliberately push for it. And that's what he thinks needs to be done uh, on, the, on the U.S. side. Um, Ambassador Blackwell and a couple of others have come out with a new Council on Foreign Relations report uh, last week, where they go in the opposite direction. They recommend something from the U.S. perspective that looks to me very much like containment light. The still containment. That the United States deliberately sets out to attempt to contain China within its own region. For two reasons, they argue. Both because it's good for American interest, but also because it's more stabilizing. It's something that would send a powerful signal to China that the kind of behavior that China has engaged in towards the rest of the region would have consequences in terms of further U.S. involvement. Now, I believe that the Chinese are already getting that. They're not always responding the way I would like to see to it, but it's the recommendation that, that comes up. And then, of course, my, my future colleague, uh, Steve Walt, has commented on this from a, his usual uh, wonderful, sometimes rather tongue-in-cheek realist perspective, saying, right, so where do you draw the line then? What are the red lines, to use a much misused term in particularly American foreign affairs, um, that would trigger such a containment policy? And how capable economically and politically is the United States of carrying out such a Cold War-esque 
kind of policy today towards China within China's own region. Is that at all possible, Steve Walt asks. And based on the form that the United States has shown in carrying out large-scale foreign policy aims over the last decade or so, his answer is one has to be very, very careful with this. Now, one issue which does worry me is the extension of naval capabilities and naval power in the Western Pacific. Now, this makes me sound like a latter-day version of Alfred Mayen or, or possibly Paul Kennedy um, in, in the rise of um, Anglo-German naval antagonism. It's not quite like that, though it is useful to look at how power is actually projected. And in this region, increasingly, it is about the sea. It is about naval engagements, both from the American perspective and, and the, the Chinese perspective. And in terms of how the two have dealt with each other on this, this is deeply, deeply troubling. It's a game of one-upmanship that is already underway, in which accidents could happen, could easily happen, in a, couple of, in a couple of cases that we know of, that could have enormous consequences for the whole region. So restraint with regard to this, in the Western Pacific, and for that matter elsewhere, is essential if conflict is going to be avoided uh, within the region. But it's also about how alliance systems are built. As we know from the Cold War, alliances can be destabilizing, and they can be stabilizing. It depends very much on what kind of alliance it is and how well integrated it is and how it works with regard to others, how inclusive it can possibly be. And on this, within the region, certainly the United States has the advantage. Um, though China is trying, as we've seen of late, very much to build its own alliance systems on a regional scale, though their allies are not the kind of allies that I would generally recommend uh, for your overall sanity, North Korea, Pakistan, the Chinese have just come up with 96 billion, I think it is, for infrastructural programs in Pakistan. My message when I was in China recently is that people have tried that before, and it hasn't really worked out the way they would like to see it. The uh, infrastructure, of course, that the Chinese most worry about with regard to Pakistan is the infrastructure that brings Islamist extremism from Pakistan into Xinjiang. So if the Chinese want to spend money on building an alliance with Pakistan, they should probably avoid the Karakoram Highway. <laughs> now, it's quite possible, I think it's even likely, that U.S. strategic superiority may make China unwilling to confront U.S. power for quite some time to come. I think that is the most likely scenario. It is not the only scenario, but it's the most likely one. And of course, in this sense, it is far too early for Washington under the new administration, whoever that may be, to give up on what has been the line going back to the early 1970s in U.S. policy towards China, which is to try to set up forms of comprehensive cooperation and strategic reassurance at the same time. We are perhaps in some areas running out of time on this, but there is still time. There is still the possibility to build something that is more inclusive, that is more interactive. Now, I think the main reason 
why that is possible, it's desirable, obviously, but also, but also possible, has to do with the economic aspects of this relationship. And I don't have to point this out to you here this evening. In how closely the United States and China work together, a bit against themselves, in terms of how international finance and international economics actually work. This is a new phenomenon in terms of how rising powers and status quo powers actually work. This was not the relationship between the United States and Great Britain. When the United States drove towards great power, it was much more confrontational in economic terms for a very, very long time than what it has been, at least up to very recently, in the relationship between China and the United States. China is much more integrated into the global economy than any rising power has been before. And that is likely to last. Now, as we know, again, and here I can call on history for evidence, integration, mutual dependence, in economic terms, doesn't necessarily mean that we can avoid conflict. A lot of people taught that in 1914, and, and they were proven wrong. But it certainly is a starting point for different forms of cooperation that can draw on the positive aspects of the relationship that go beyond the power relations uh, rivalries that I've talked about in this lecture. There is still time to do that. There is still time to accentuate these kinds of efforts. But that work would have to start now. If not, it is very clear to me that the two sides will, will drive apart. Now, to conclude, let me, since I'm going to a public policy school after all, let me try to come up with some suggestions as to what can be done. What are the big issues that the two sides, the United States and China, will need to look at in order to have a better potential for cooperation and understanding in the future? On the U.S. side, the starting point has to be a rebuilding of the U.S. economy internally to make it more competitive, more productive. I believe that the United States, in terms of how the recent crisis has developed, has a golden opportunity of doing that. I mean, anyone who thinks that it's impossible for the United States to get back, at least on some areas, in the competitive lead, in my view, are wrong. It is possible. But it needs a concerted effort to do that, which also involves what is so hard for many Americans to accept, a role at all levels for the government. Now, will this be possible? We don't know. It is a big, big political question. But clearly, without rebuilding its economy, without on, in some fields, getting back in the competitive lead, the United States' role as a global power is drawing towards its end. Because, as Danny has pointed out and others have pointed out, this enormous discrepancy between what the United States wants to do in the world and what it's capable of doing in the world. And if there is not a rebuilding of the economy at home, we know how it's going to end up. You don't have to be, uh, believe that you studied history very intently to see how that ends up. Countries that are not able to manage their own economy end up, sooner or later, on the scrap heap of history. That's how things are. If you cannot fund what you want to do, even in a smaller context, 
things end up very, very badly. They also end up very often being very unstable, as we have seen many examples of over the past 200 years. Then secondly, equally difficult uh, in, in managing America's transition over to a more multipolar world system. The United States, in my view, has to allow China to take up leadership roles in the international economic system, even if these roles, in terms of how China wants to play it, under whatever government is in place in Beijing, are not immediately to the U.S. liking. At the moment, the United States is not doing it. The Obama administration made fools of themselves by trying to block the um, Asian Infrastructure Bank and, and China's building of that. I also think that, on the whole, the idea of trying to exclude China from a Pacific trading bloc, which would pay, place the United States and its allies at the center, is a foolish idea. It is not an idea that is going to work more long term. It's simply not going to work. But it's also going to be seen by many Chinese as directed against them and directed against China's further rise. Even if you do not like the way China behaves in terms of international organizations, it's 100 times better to have China engaged in terms of international organizations than see them sit dissatisfied on the outside or having to build their own, their own alternatives. That's also true, by the way, for the Bretton Woods institutions, what, what remains, remains of them. And then finally, the United States, as Steve Walt reminds us in his uh, foreign policy comment, the United States has to set international priorities carefully and selectively. Now, over the past almost 15 years now, the United States has not been able to do that. It has been a very undisciplined superpower in terms of how it projects its power. This is about Iraq, it's about Afghanistan, but it's also about a whole set of other engagements that the United States is not capable in the longer run of keeping up if it at the same time is going to deal seriously with what is the biggest challenge to its power, what happens within the Eastern Asian region. You can't have it both ways. You have to have a little bit of discipline in order to carry out any kind of policy, not least foreign policy. Now, on the Chinese side, what can be done? What should be done? I think, first and foremost, to emphasize global issues on which the United States and China can truly cooperate, such as climate change, such as infrastructural issues that are important, such as financial issues that are important, setting up a better, more comprehensive uh, financial system for, for the world after the last economic crisis. China can contribute very positively to that, and to some extent it does. But it has to push that advantage further in terms of how its economy works, and it has to do it specifically and deliberately with regard to the United States, with the United States in mind. What the Chinese are doing at the moment, seems to me, is to try to work around the United States in terms of how it sets up these kinds of uh, arrangements for China's engagement in global issues. It acts as a spoiler rather than an actual contributor to stability. That's unwise because it antagonizes the United States, but maybe first and foremost because it also antagonizes a lot of others who see their own interests as being served within the order that is there now, even though they can grumble about it and they can say that this is not 
really something we like. We like it changed. What the Chinese have to learn is that they don't necessarily want to change it a la China. They don't necessarily want to change it in the direction that the Chinese want the international system to go in. Then, of course, avoiding conflict within the region is, is essential. And I have a general suggestion as to how that can be done, which some people in China like and others dislike, and that's to learn from ASEAN, learn from the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, um, where you actually have to accept a certain degree of disagreement, dissonance, even inactivity, but where you have a framework that ties you up to others, that connects you to others, that helps you learn. That in the, in the same way as, in my view, NATO, for instance, has done with the United States, it helps to socialize the United States into a form of using its power where they also have to look at what others think and mean and do. That would be good for China. Though a lot of people in China today would see this as entirely out of the question. I wouldn't say that it is impossible. I wouldn't be surprised, actually, if 20 years from now, China has moved towards a form of engagement with its neighbors that is very, very different, also structurally, from what we see today. But of course, this means that people within China have to be brave. You know, you have to be brave to do this. We know this from US history, we know it from British history, we know it from German history. In order to create these kinds of changes, you have to be very brave and very forward. If you go with the flow on these kinds of issues, you know, entangling alliances of any sort will never happen. Because the majority, probably, of your own population, when you start out working on it, would find it difficult to accept. And then finally, to increase China's policy-making capabilities, particularly within foreign policy, but also across the board. Now, this is something that a lot of people get wrong. And I discussed this, Mick and I discussed it in Beijing and others quite, quite a bit. The general impression you get in Washington or in London is that in terms of foreign policy strategy, the Chinese stand 10 foot tall. They have the big overview. This is the Kissinger version of history, right? Um, they have the big overview. They can think strategically, while no one else can think strategically in the same way. Um, 5,000 years of history, give or take. Um, the idea that you can coordinate, synchronize, do that easily, all points in the direction of people who can think strategically. I tell you, the current leadership in Beijing, the way I have met it, is almost inherently incapable of thinking strategically. And the main reason why they're incapable of it is that there are so many conflicting voices, so many competing bureaucracies that are there to advise the central leadership in terms of where it comes out on, on foreign policy. In a report that I did recently, I pointed to 17 different ministries, bureaus, agencies that, are, that have direct access to the Chinese leadership in terms of coming up with foreign policy advice. But that's not good. <laughs> I mean, it's not good if there is no one coordinating it. And the new National Security Committee in China that was set up with that purpose never seems to have made it beyond the boundaries of saying that terrorism is very bad, which undoubtedly it is. But, I mean, that's a statement of fact more than a policy position. So 
This is something that China really has to deal with. It is a dictatorship that works very badly as a dictatorship. Um, it, because of the lack of coordination that is there. And I think uh, only the future can tell the direction that Xi Jinping wants to go in with regard to this. We can hope that he would move in a more positive direction than what has been shown so far. Because, and this is what I want to leave you with, because at the end of the day, when conflicts are rising, particularly in a regional context, and this is also true for other powers, not just true for China and the United States, but true in general, what you have to fall back on at the critical moments is the wisdom of leaders. They can't define, set up the directions that things are taking overall. They can't, as Marx said, create the circumstances under which they act. But at their best, they can make decisions. And they can make decisions that take us away from conflict and towards a greater degree of, of stability. And this is uh, one of the things that I think have been going badly wrong in terms of the relationship between China and the United States for the last six, seven years or thereabout. They may have read the first book of the Peloponnesian War, but they haven't read book three, the final book, which in his first chapter, Thucydides says, in this situation, he says, the advocate of extreme measures was always trustworthy, and his opponent a man to be suspected. That's very much what I find both on the U.S. side and the Chinese side now in terms of the relationship between the two. So there is a Thucydides trap, but it might be a slightly different trap than what we've had in mind so far. Thank you very much. Arnie, thank you so much for a great lecture, and also thank you very much for not mentioning the British election, mm. <laughs> where, of course, foreign policy has been a central element in, the, in a wide-ranging global debate about the key issues facing us all today. You said, and I will begin, and then I'll open it up to everybody else, that China won't accept equality with its Asian neighbours, uh, Japan included, but not only Japan. China is the only country in the world I've ever been to which regards Indonesia as being a small country. Hmm. But moving it on to the American side, which you reflected on, I thought very interestingly, I suppose the question is, will the United States ever accept equality with China? Uh, there's an American problem, and it would be the first hegemon in history which would ever accept this. And I think it's both deeply imbued in the DNA of most Americans, and indeed certainly of the foreign policy and strategic elites. You may think America's in decline. They don't. Many people outside the United States may think the United States is going down the swanee. Uh, Obama doesn't. Um, so, you know, there's a very deep anti-declinism, not declinism, in foreign policy elites in the United States, whatever people say in the Financial Times or here at the LSE. So the first question I want to ask is really, will, will the United States accept equality with China on the basis that it doesn't actually think that it's in decline? It's having problems, it's readjusting, or whatever you want to call it. So therefore, I, it, I think it asks itself the question, why should we adjust? 
to an equal relationship because we're still number one and going to remain so. And I think actually there's quite a lot of hubris on the American side about the next five, 10 or 15 years. In, in some senses, history is still on America's side. So let you reflect on that. The other thing is you mentioned one great Australian, well, an Australian, Kevin, <laughs> Kevin Rudd, uh, who is a very great Australian. Can, I, can I mention another Australian whom I, whose work I actually respect quite greatly? And he was here lecturing not very long ago, Hugh White from the Australian National University. And Hugh made a very interesting... He's made, the, he's made the case on paper and he's made it here, which is, in a sense, that the only way out of the dilemma, which you very brilliantly analyse, containment is kind of out the window. I mean, you know, the horse is bolted, for goodness sake. Integration raises all sorts of problems, as we know. But what Hugh, I think, very bravely is, is confronted is that, in the end, the United States and China would have to come to some deal. Hmm. You know, a great power condominium. He calls it a concert of Asia. Now, he sees there's enormous problems on the Chinese side, even more problems on the, on the American side. Perhaps you could reflect yeah. on some no, of those things, Arnie, and then I'll open it up to the, to the rest of the No, audience. that's very, very good, Mick, as always. Um, I think these two are, to quite some extent, um, related, though maybe not in the most obvious of ways. I mean, on the U.S. side, will the United States be able to accept decline gracefully. <laughs> I think that's very unlikely. But as we know, decline is a very relative concept. And the issue, if you remove this from academia a bit, as we should, is not so much about saying that your country is in decline. No sane politician, maybe with a couple of exceptions in this country, would, would say that. You know, it's not, it's not the, the way things are, are being played. But if you turn it in the other direction of thinking that the United States would be capable of integrating others, including China, into a world system that it itself has created, and thereby playing a role as the leader for a world that looks different from what it has over the last 25 years, but still keeps a very significant part of its own influence, but maybe most important of all, gets others to cooperate on the basis that the Americans have created. Yeah. I think it is possible to do that. Um, it's tough. It's very difficult. It's particularly difficult, as I said in the lecture, because of the emphasis that is there in the United States on its own special position, the different versions, different forms of American exceptionalism. But hey, the Americans are not the only ones who are thinking of themselves as being exceptional in a, in, in a broader sense, historically or even today. So ruling that out as a possibility in political terms is, is unwise. It might not happen, but the consequences of it not happening, I think, could be rather catastrophic. Um, but it could. Which leads you to Hugh White. Which yeah. leads me exactly to Hugh White. Um, now, my view on this has been that it's very important that the United States, in terms of this period of transition that we were talking about, stays in Eastern Asia, that it connects up to its traditional allies within this region. I've been very outspoken on this. Uh, it provides stability. There's absolutely no doubt uh, that it does. But that it does so in a way that would not enable groups of Eastern Asian countries or individual countries, and here I'm particularly thinking Japan, to get into a conflict with China on its own accord. This is the, this is the problem, in a way, of the U, uh, U-White position. 
you can build a concert of Asia which which China sort of halfway inside and halfway halfway outside. I think indeed that is possible. Uh, though I think it's much more difficult than the first proposition that we talk, than, that we talked about. But you have to do it in a way where the American the continued American engagement does not give others the impression that they can push back against China to a degree that will create more conflict rather than helping to solve conflicts. This is mm. very difficult. Mm. Uh, it would be difficult in any, in any setting. Is it possible? Yeah, of course it's possible. Look at the Cold War. Uh, you know, and look at how the Cold War developed. Uh, it is possible, even in U.S. and allied uh, foreign policy thinking, to have two big ideas on the one hand, trying to set up a system that will take you away from the possibility of an armed attack on one of the countries that the United States is associated with, and on the other hand, forms of reassurance against the ones you're dealing with. Now, I'm not saying that that is the ideal system. The Cold War, as you know from stuff that I've written earlier on, far from an ideal system. But those today, particularly the United States, who deny that it's possible to set up a system like this, mm. I think clearly, clearly are wrong. Mm. Thanks, Annie. Okay, I've got a few hands that have already gone up. I'll, I've got one identifiable hand at the front here in the shape of Mary Caldor. So, Mary, over to you. Okay, well, thank you so much, Arnie, and it makes me realise how much we're going to miss you. <laughs> um, Fred Halliday always used to accuse me of being an internalist. <laughs> uh, and I amongst happily, other things, Mary, amongst other happily things. accept <laughs> the accusation. <laughs> so I want to ask you an internalist question. I really want to ask how the sort of developments you talked about at the beginning, the need for political change internally, is related to foreign policy. At the end of your lecture, you talked very interestingly, I thought, about the 17 different bureaucracies. That What are the different trends within them? And, you know, the ones who are in favor of being a bully and the ones who are in favor of integration, and how does this relate to domestic political developments? Okay, thanks, Mary. Take that straight away. Arnie, over to you. Okay. Yeah, that's a very, very good question, Mary. Um, I think... I mean, two things that are important here. Different from what a lot of people think, there is no specific long-term dividing line in terms of the policy papers that I've seen internally on the Chinese side that would set one of these units, one of these bureaucracies, up as being more dovish or hawkish than the other. It changes with the position. Now, that's probably not good, in fact, in many ways. Um, but it also shows how incredibly fluent, fluid the foreign policy scene is seen from Beijing. It also shows something else, I think. Uh, I may be wrong about this, but I do think it shows how the competition between these various bureaucracies sometimes turn out to be much more important than the actual advice that they provide for the leader. You have to get the mood of the day right. Anyone who's worked in Whitehall or worked in Washington also knows that that's how the game is played there. It's not just uh, something that is unique for China. Now, there are two questions then of change. I mean, one is internally under the current system. And I think the general trend that we've seen over the past decade or so is that the long-term established foreign policy bureaucracies, first of all, the foreign ministry, are becoming less important and that those associated with the different parts of the Communist Party 
are becoming more important. The leading foreign policy bureaucracy in China, as I know it today, are the staffers for the small leading group on foreign affairs under the Central Committee, in, in effect under the Standing Committee of the Politburo. They have much better access to the Chinese leaders on a daily basis in terms of coming up with foreign policy advice than what the foreign ministry has. The foreign minister himself is becoming increasingly a peripheral figure in much of the decision-making on this. And then there is, of course, the big question, what will happen when this regime is no longer in place? And that is a, that's a very, very big question. And I, again, think it would be very unfortunate if we only think in one direction. That one direction often tends to be more democratic, meaning more open, more pluralistic, better for the rest of the world. I'm not sure, in terms of the abilities to find cooperative, stable arrangements with others, that in China that's necessarily true. I would have liked to see it being true, but I'm not, I'm not sure that it is. And part of the problem here is Chinese nationalism and the rise of, of nationalism within China. Now, the, the regime itself has contributed to this, uh, as we know, uh, in part by writing textbooks for uh, young kids in, in history that are ten times worse than the Japanese textbooks that they so much lament in terms of the relationship between China and the, and the, and the outside world. But it's also because I think young people especially have so few other avenues for coming up with any criticism of their daily life that very often it is taken out in, in saying, you know, the rest of the world is against China. Japan is against China, trying to, trying to destroy China more, more long term. Now, the party has been very careful in terms of how it wants to play this. The current leadership under Xi Jinping is as aware as Mao Zedong was in his time that playing with nationalist card is like Mao said, like riding the tiger. You, as long as you can keep a good grasp of the tiger's ears, you're doing all right. Mm. But if you fall off, it will eat you. It will devour you alive, he said. That's also true, I think, to some extent for the current Chinese leadership. I mean, it's very easy to turn nationalism as an argument against them and also to turn nationalism into a direction of pointing towards more openness and more democracy. I mean, we saw that in 1989. It could happen again. Okay, I'm going to take another question from below. Then I'm going to go up there. Then I'm going to come down again. Uh, I've got David Stevenson here. David. Yeah, I w want to come to the point you made at the beginning about analysing this primarily as a, as a bilateral relationship, but you can't entirely mm. do that. Mm. If we're looking for 20 years ahead, mm. I just want some thoughts about the sort of pros and cons or possibilities or likelihoods of either of an American combination with India against China, or more particularly the, the possibility of a combination of China with Russia against the United States, which is the one that would really frighten me. Mm. Okay, let's take that uh, question. Do you want to take it now? Take that yep. one now. Yeah, that's a good question, David. Tough one. I think. For someone who studied alliances, I, I can I can see where you come from on this. <laughs> um, on the U.S.-India relationship, this is going to be a crucial relationship in the 21st century. In fact, on some of the issues that I'm preoccupied with, I could as well have replaced that for the U.S.-China relationship in terms of what I'm talking about today. It will come to prominence later than the relationship, the now relatively conflictual relationship between the United States and China. But it will still be very, very important in this century. And part of the reason for that, obviously, is India's own rise, which I think is as unavoidable 
as what has happened in China. I think those who say that India will never be able to come up to the kind of development levels that China has seen today are plain wrong. It will happen in different forms. It will take longer. But India has a lot of advantages going for it, not least in demographic terms, if you think about it over a longer period period of time. Um, what has really changed the scene within Asia as a whole is, of course, the degree to which the United States and India are now able to work together uh, openly and covertly. Uh, you see it in a number of, of cases very recently. And I think that is a relationship that is probably going to hold and is going to be very significant, not least for the conflict that I talked about in Southeast Asia. It won't happen in the next decade. It probably won't happen in a decade after that. But when we get to the middle part of this century, I would not be surprised that uh, India and the United States will be able to work together on a whole set of issues with regard to Eastern Asia. Now, on the China-Russia relationship, the, uh, uh, which could easily be seen, not entirely correctly, the two uh, wannabe uh, states in terms of international affairs coming together. Um, they could do that wannabe song together, actually. Um, there are much more conflict. I mean, there are much more difficulties in terms of dealing with it, even, even now. I think the, the Russia, Russian fear of cooperating too closely with China, deep within the political establishment in Moscow, uh, is so strong that there are clear limits to how far they are willing to go in that direction. Indeed, and this is a, a question actually for the audience as well, the current closeness between the two, in the evolution of this over the last two years or 18 months, which has been spectacular in many ways, is of course brought on because of the Western reaction to uh, uh, Soviet uh, adventures in, in, in the Ukraine. Steve, what is right to ask? Uh, is it worth it from a Western perspective to drive Russia even further into the arms of China by keeping up over time I uh, approach to the Russian regime, any Russian regime, that makes that Russia's only outlet, it seems, to the outside world. Now, I'm as much against uh, what Putin has done with regard to the Ukraine, uh, and may do in other cases as well, uh, as anyone else. But I do think that is a question that is worth asking. Um, I don't think even if the United States and Western Europe were to hold up the kind of... Uh, punishment towards Russia that it has at the moment in terms of sanctions and other initiatives, that that would create a lasting Sino-Soviet, uh, Sino-Russian alliance. But it could create a situation with regard to the larger Eastern Asian region that could be very uncomfortable uh, for American and European interest for the next decade. Yeah, I've got a couple of guys. Yeah, the chap there, Martin. Yeah, hi there. Two questions, um, one and then two. Yeah, please, yeah. No, sorry. Um, yeah, perhaps a little bit more big picture thinking. Um, indeed, one of your I'm pretty good at that. Yeah. colleagues, I well, think, just done, really. over at Harvard, Niall Ferguson, um, and certainly some of the stuff that he's written on, on empires and the rise and fall, um, and also almost the, the handover of power. Um, what do you think is going to be really the big tipping point um, between, say, the decline of the United States uh, and China really now leading the rat race? Hmm. Right, okay. Do you agree with Neil Ferguson? I think that was the question. In... Do you want me to take that no, now? No, because no. it's an easy one to answer. Yeah, and then a gentleman there, please. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. 
Okay, thanks for your, uh, I mean, brilliant analysis as ever on, on things like military power and economic uh, uh, prowess. I think one of the things which perhaps wasn't addressed is, is soft power and the difference between American and or somewhat, you know, kind of Western soft power and China's either soft power, their appetite to project soft power or indeed even their ability to do so and that uh, as a contributor to primacy. Okay. Take Two very good questions. Um, slightly tongue-in-cheek on the locals. Um, it is true that there are many things we do not agree on. Um, what is also true is that Neil is an absolutely first-rate thinker on international affairs with regard to a background in history. I think he's often wrong, but he's willing to ask the right kinds of questions, and he asks them, asks them very well, uh, including questions that others are doing their best to try to, to, try to avoid. Now, what will, be the, what will be the tipping point? I mean, if I were a betting man, hmm. as I am, <laughs> I would probably have told that the key issue at the moment, I mean, the way the world looks now, is Southeast Asia. Um, I think we are getting to the situation in overall terms that China doesn't have to push much more beyond what it has done of late to set off an adversarial reaction within ASEAN that will do two things. It will provide, it will set up, it will create the incentives to make ASEAN or parts thereof into a military alliance led by the big countries. And it will bring the United States much more deeply in through bilateral arrangements. We're already seeing some of that, some of that happening. And of course that could have uh, very negative consequences if it is not if it is not uh, handled well. Um, I think uh, one of my uh, uh, key uh, dividing lines in terms of how I understand the region around uh, China was meeting with um, the former now former uh, Indonesian president Yudhoyono, who had had his reports, I think, only a week before from that infamous uh, ASEAN uh, and China, all those uh, ASEAN plus foreign ministers meeting in Hanoi in 2010, where the Chinese foreign minister, correctly we know now because we have the transcripts, uh, was quoted as saying, there is a big difference between China and the other countries in the region. That is that China is a big country and you are small countries. <laughs> That's right, yes, very small. And <laughs> President Giordano, who is usually a very soft-spoken man, um, when he said this, he's, he, he looked at me and he said, you know, we are a serious country. We won't be treated like this. And if you are the president of a republic, reasonably well-armed republic, 200, more than 200 million people, uh, Muslims in, in Southeast Asia, you won't be treated like that. So, I mean, clearly there is a tipping point here that is of great significance. Soft power. We, as, as some of you know, um, we have been running in ideas, Mick and I and others, a training program for the Chinese Foreign Ministry and now also for parts of the International Department of the Party. And this has been extremely useful. I don't think it's been half as useful for the people who come here from China as it's been for us. 
in terms of understanding what goes on within those um, particular uh, particular units. And one of the first ones we had, can you remember that, Nick? Oh. Was doing uh, mm. the poor guy who'd been the press spokesman oh, for, yes. the, for the Chinese foreign ministry before he came <laughs> here. They, ha- they all have to do a dissertation, and he wanted to do his dissertation on Chinese soft power. And after nine months, he came up with this wonderful uh, dissertation, which basically said China has no soft power. Yeah. Um, that was your fault, wasn't it? Yeah. Was I thought it was me. I can't remember. Anyway, I think that that's obviously not entirely true. But if you think about soft power in the Jonai sense, I mean, in sort of integration sense of soft power, the soft power has a purpose. It can do other things that it can do. Uh, that can be done through other kinds of power, let's put it that way. Well, then China certainly has very, very little, Uh, even through its Confucius Institutes or whatever else it sets up. uh, You know, there is something extremely heavy-handed about all of this. I'm not saying that it cannot be put to good uses by others who want to learn more about China, but it really doesn't work in the way that American attempts or even British attempts or German attempts or French attempts have been in order to make use of soft power. And China has a lot to learn. Now, some people will be saying... Okay, China can't do soft power because it is a rather unattractive dictatorship at home. I think one has to be careful with that argument. It's not just about that, although that plays a role. It's also about learning more about others. I mean, this goes back to where I ended, the point on which I ended my lecture. Mm. Um, You know, China needs to learn more about the outside world in order to be able to manage it. Uh, It's not that Chinese, particularly those working on foreign affairs, do not know enough about, about foreign cultures and foreign languages. But as all of you will know here, knowing it, reading it, and understanding it can be very different. And particularly if you're American or Chinese or come from a big country, it's harder to do. It's much harder to do than if you come from a, a country that is more direct interaction um, with other countries. So there's a lot to learn, I think, on that before Channel Soft Power gets up to the point where it could be useful. Okay. I've got a few questions down the bottom at the moment. I've got quite a lot of hands up, so I'm afraid I'm not going to have everybody, but I'm going to, I'm going to take two. Firstly, our good colleague and friend from Oxford, Rosemary Foote, and then I'm going to move along to our other good friend, Vlad Zubok, who's here at the LSE. So, Rosemary, then Vlad, answer those, and then we'll move on. Rosemary. Thanks very much. Um, thanks very much, Arnie, and I second what Mary had to say. We're going to miss you. A couple of points that are relevant to thinking about constraints on conflict, and mm. the first fits into your remarks a few moments ago. We describe Chinese policies as counterproductive. Is there any sense in which they understand them through that lens, or do they, do they view their policies in a very different um, way? Um, the second point is... Um, I was very struck by what you said about the United States should allow China to take up certain international economic roles. Uh, I suppose my question to you would be then, okay, in the region, what would you allow China to do? I mean, in terms of leadership, in terms of its authority, in terms of its major power um, position in the region, what would be a reasonable um, policy for, for China to develop there? Okay, thanks. If you could pass the mic along to to Vlad Zubot. Vlad, please. Arnie, uh, many thanks for this highly enlightening presentation. Bringing you back to Thucydides, Mm. Uh, I don't know in which volume, but I know he wrote about three factors, uh, fear, 
honor and self-interest. And I guess honor means nationalism. You spoke mm. about it. What about fear specifically? I, I heard that uh, several Chinese institutes uh, invested a lot of time and money into studying the collapse of the Soviet Union. <laughs> What kind of lessons did they draw from that? Right. Well, that's a simple question. Well, they, they read your book, Vlad, <laughs> in great they get, numbers. They get very worried. You know? Yeah, I think that makes them quite worried, actually, um, about death, damnation, and decay. No, it's more than that to your book. Anyway, um, let me deal with that fun question from, from uh, Vlad Zubok first. Now, I, I do think that fear plays a very significant role in this. Um, I don't think I ever come across a leadership for a major country anywhere, uh, personally or historically, at least in, 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 a, in a very long time, where there is so much fear as there is among the Chinese leadership at the moment. And this may seem very paradoxical. I mean, China has been rising for a very, very long time. It seems to be almost unassailable in terms of what it's been able to do uh, in economic and financial terms, and its power is growing within the region. So why then this fear and disquiet? I think part of the reason is that they feel very strongly themselves that they do not have a clear strategy on how to achieve their foreign policy aims. And it's that lack of a cohesive strategy that creates fear. I mean, again, historically, as you know, Vlad, that is what very, very often happens. When you don't see an immediate way of getting from A to B, even though you're capable of seeing that aim, um, fearfulness tends to come in rather, rather quickly. And that's fear, as we know, is not good for policymaking. It never, never is, uh, because it emphasizes those elements that you try to shy away from, the elements that have to do with with instability, with having to take dramatic action, changing things around quickly, you know, all the kinds of things that could lead to, to difficulty. So I, wor I, 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 I worry about that. Um, they are very keenly, not just your book, they're very keenly studying the collapse of the Soviet Union. Hmm. Um, when I went into a Chinese bookstore in uh, the great city of Hangzhou last week, um, at least three new, major new works on the collapse of the Soviet Union by Chinese authors were there. Uh, one of them, by the way, is a book that you have to study parts of now in order to get up the first yeah. rung of the ladder as a Communist Party member, uh, which is quite interesting. Not many historical texts that you have to look at for that. So that, that is significant. Do they know how to approach this? What to learn from it? I don't know. But they certainly don't want to be the Soviets. That's what they know. I don't think they will be either, by the way, but that's another question. You could race over drinks. Rosemary, um, do they realize that much of what they're doing is counterproductive? That's a tough one. I, obviously, the cop-out here is saying it entirely depends on who you ask, but th that is true. Um, if you ask academics, even very influential academics, um, Yeah, I think they do to quite some extent. If you, if you ask the people who are really, really on the inside of the system as well, um, and I know a couple of them, but not very many, um, you would probably also get that response to some extent that some of what, what they've been doing have been counterproductive. Though the insiders would explain it with political necessity, as would happen in, in other countries as well. 
Um, in general terms, my sense is not. If you follow the Chinese uh, blogosphere or, or Weibo, you know, their version of, of, of messaging and Twitter, um, you don't get that impression. Uh, quite on the contrary, you go straight to the third book of the Citadus. You know, the, the one who comes up with the most radical solution for bashing the heads in of people who are seen as being a threat to China in any way, they get all the kudos. They get all the support. Um, it's not uniformly so, but it is so to a remarkably high degree, uh, and particularly coming from younger people in China. Now, of course, these people are a tiny minority among the ones who would have an informed political opinion, but they're very vocal and they're very direct, and they would be a problem if a new Chinese leadership, or even the present Chinese leadership, which is possible, want to turn in a more cooperative direction. On that, by the way, and I should say this before we, before we break up, there are signs, pretty strong signs, over the last six months that some of the key advisors to the president himself, to Xi Jinping, seem to have drawn the consequences of some of the Chinese actions happening simultaneously with regard to Japan and with regard to Southeast Asia. And that privately, at least, if not yet publicly, with regard to Southeast Asia, the Chinese have tried to dampen the temperature, tried to remove some of the uh, conflicts that are there in terms of rhetoric. I was able to see the transcript of the November meeting between Xi Jinping and uh, the Philippine um, president, where Xi went out of his way to try to reassure the country that is seen as the, the one that is most opposed to China's actions in the South China Sea. I don't think it had much of an effect, because at the same time the Chinese were taking actions in the South China Sea that the Philippines understandably thought was directed against um, uh, against them. Now, the second part of your question, Rosemary, what, what should the Chinese be allowed to do is, is again, a very, very good one. The way I'd like to approach it is they should be allowed to set up a Asian infrastructure bank without the Americans saying that this is very bad. Um, because it isn't very bad. It is, in many ways, very, very good. Uh, it, it, not just for China, probably less of all for China. I was asking them when I, when I was in China last week, you know, so how big is your trade surplus? How much money have you got to put into all of this? $96 billion to Pakistan? You know. Um, so they should be certainly be allowed to, that, to do that kind of thing. Obviously, they should have greater voting, voting rights in the international economic institutions as they contribute more. I think that is, that's very clear. Um, should they be allowed to be seen almost as a block of its own in a new version, a more inclusive version of the TPP over time, of the Trans-Pacific Economic Partnership that the United States is trying to set up? Yes, I think they should be allowed to do that. That would have some negative consequences for the United States. But if the United States want to be an integrationist superpower, well, that's the kind of thing that integrationist superpowers do. You know, they do allow, as the United States did with Western Europe uh, and Japan, in the post-war era, and with China, by, by the way, in the 1970s and 1980s, when the Cold War was still on, you know, they were willing to, as it were, take a few for the team, you know, and basically say, we represent the system, system is ours, we created it, therefore you, China would be allowed to take positions, even if it would go against our own, our own immediate, immediate interests. So I think that's the way I would, I would answer that. Uh, Protecting sea lanes. Yeah. You mean within the region? 
But I think in the current climate, um, and what I can foresee in the immediate future, any cooperation on that would be very difficult on all sides, not just the United States and China, but also Southeast Asia itself. Could it happen in a longer perspective, sort of in a sort of interest-based perspective? Absolutely. I mean, who is it that really benefits from open sea lanes through the Malacca Strait and elsewhere? It's China. It's not the United States. It is not even Southeast Asia to some extent. Uh, it's China. So, so clearly there is a potential for cooperation, but I think in the current, in the current situation it's difficult to bring about. Thanks, Again, there's a gentleman here, and this might have to be our last one. I know there's other hands that have gone up. I'll do my best. Quick question, maybe a quick answer. We can bring up right. people. Uh, thank you, uh, Professor Ani. I'm Dr. Adil. I'm from Pakistan and working at uh, Research Fellow at IISS. Um, part of the questions were asked, so I'll just go to it. Don't you think, is it natural for a rising power, the kind of challenges or alliances being built around China? Mm. So it's something natural for a rising power to react. And just a quick comment on this. Uh, Pakistan is not being offered $96 billion, It's $46 billion. Ah. It's, oh, it's for the infrastructure oh. development. Oh, it's just a few billion dollars. Yeah, so. Another comment so little, so uh, on the Islamic extremism, which uh, several found it amusing. As a professor of history, if you would like to go to the history, who created these groups? and who used Pakistan. It's not Pakistan that created these groups. Pakistan is a sufferer mm. and a victim of that. Mm. Uh, thank you very much. Okay. OK, I think we might have to take that as the last question. I know okay. there's other people's hands right. up. I do apologize. But it's a, it's, it's a good question around. on the Pakistan-China uh, relationship because Pakistan or the South Asia region in general, particularly if you include Afghanistan post next year, as it were, uh, is a big challenge for Chinese foreign policy. And if China is going to emphasize stability and be seen to emphasize stability, that's one of its best opportunities to do so, including in its alliance relationship uh, with Pakistan. Um, and I think China has a, has a potential uh, for doing it, certainly in working with the current Pakistani government, which could itself make a major uh, contribution to, to stability. We will see, we will see next year. Um, now, the big issue here is, of course, that on the Chinese side, emphasizing Pakistan exclusively over attempting to build more long-term as a much more stable relationship with India will be counterproductive. Uh, so China, in a way, has to do both. But again, as, as we just discussed in, in, uh, in, in Joyang, Superpowers or aspiring superpowers, aspiring great powers, have to be able to do many things at once. And China ought to be able to have a reasonable relationship uh, with India. Uh, I think it will take a very long time for the two countries to be bosom friends, but I think it's possible to have a much better relationship between the two than what is the case at the moment, while continuing to assist in economic terms and build relations with, with Pakistan. At the moment, China is failing dismally in doing so. Uh, in terms of its relationship with India. Now, on extremism, I had the um, great honor of living in your country for quite a while in the mid-1980s when extremism was on the rise. And I agree with you that if you think about the situation um, in terms of what happened in Afghanistan, what happened in the, in, in the, in the border areas, um, several border areas, uh, the United States had a great deal to do with the creation of strong uh, 
radical Islamist organizations. But so most definitely did the then uh, Pakistani government under Zia ul uh, had a very strong, very significant impact on what happened uh, for reasons that were connected uh, uh, to the Cold War, quite obviously. In this, I think there is actually a strong lesson for the current relationship between China and its neighbors within the region. Very often, the attempt at stimulating other kinds of activity that go beyond the state-level activity within its neighboring areas is something that can come back and haunt a great power. Um, And I think that's also true in China's current relationship with ASEAN. I mean, the idea from the Chinese perspective, which is very clear if you speak with people internally in Beijing, that the best thing for China would be to break ASEAN, to destroy it to get rid of it as an organization. That's the kind of thing that could lead China in direction, as it were, its Mujahideen moment. You know, because what could come out of this would be much worse for China than anything that China has to deal with today with an integrated organization. So, so let me end on that note. I do think that you know, if, if you want to draw something from history on these kinds of matters, you A, have to approach it very broadly, but you also have to think about it you know, across areas, across countries, and obviously across, across time periods. Sometimes that's instructive. Sometimes it's an empty sort of mind game, but perhaps we need both. Okay. I want, firstly, uh, before I move on, to thank you, the audience, and, and our speaker this evening to make a couple of announcements, if I could. Uh, Arnie, today is range-wide uh, on China, United States, and Asia in the 21st century, a small subject. Uh, next week, we've got somebody who arranged possibly even wider, if that's possible, Paul Kennedy, who was our first Philip Ramon professor here, who's returning. And he will be speaking on Monday, the 11th of May, in, in this place at 6.30. And the title of his public lecture, to which you are welcome, is Three Major Geopolitical Shifts in Modern International History mm. Since 1500. I think, Arnie, I think Arnie has Paul been very narrowly it, yeah. defined here this evening. And, and, and Paul's wonderful lecture, and I'm sure it will be, is bringing Browdell uh, into the 20th century. So there's everything there for, for, for anybody. And by the way, the day after that, we've got a, another great lecture, I hope, uh, on Colombia's transition to peace. And this is what we in Ideas uh, love doing, and this is one of the things that Arnie and I did together when we put Ideas together many years ago. Thanks to you all for your great question, but I always say you don't get great questions without a great lecture. Arnie, you are, as many people have said here this evening, going to be sorely missed, partly because you're a good guy, partly because you support the right football team, but moreover, more importantly, possibly in academic terms, because you're a great public intellectual. You brought the present together with history, you, you, you informed us with history, and you brought policy and analysis together in a most brilliant way. Don't stay away <laughs> too long. I wonder if we could say thank you and goodbye to Arnie Westhead, if only temporarily. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.